Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that even as we continue to deal with very difficult circumstances, you do not change. Your strength does not change. Your plan does not change. Who you are does not change. Lord, you give us the strength that we need, the healing that we need, the peace that we need, the comfort that we need, the joy that we need. And you lay all of this out in your word, which we need. It reveals who you are to us. It reveals your plan of salvation, how we can have a way to you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There is only one way, and that is Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time that we have together this morning, that your word would go forth and change lives and change hearts. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of the great people of the Bible and the transformation in their lives that's recorded in the Bible for us, we usually think of who? We, we think of Moses, who went from being spoiled in an Egyptian palace to leading a nation out of slavery. We think of Abraham, who we, we've talked about uh, in the not-too-distant past, who came from a thoroughly pagan family and became the father of God's chosen people. We think of Simon Peter, who went from being a coward, denying that he even knew who Jesus was three times in a row, to preaching to thousands of people. We think of Saul, who went from killing and imprisoning the early church, to Paul, one of the greatest champions of the early church. We even think of Joseph, Jacob's, one of Jacob's 12 sons back in Genesis, who went from spoiled favorite son through slavery himself and imprisonment for something he didn't do to emerge as the highest authority in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But you know what? When we think of accounts of transformation of people in the Bible, I wonder if we ever think about the transformation of Jacob's fourth son, a man named Judah. In fact, I've been guilty of overlooking the transformation of Judah in my reading of Genesis. But even before I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, I was enlightened by a pastor that I knew back in Chicago as to his discovery of the significance of this transformation. It's cool how God will plant a seed years ago of this theme, and it won't come back until years later. So I decided to check it out in more detail. What about this transformation of this man named Judah. This morning we're going to take a look at this man named Judah, see the transformation that has taken place in his life, and explore how that connects to us personally, as well as those who we know. That the hope and the power of Jesus Christ extends to even the most seemingly hopeless of a person. People are complicated, aren't they? In order to get a really good picture of what Judah's biography was, we need to actually go back to the relationship that Judah had between his mo Judah's mother and Judah's father. This is often the case with any one of us, how our parents are, what their relationship is with each other, and it's the same for Judah. Judah's mother was Leah, the older of the two sisters and wives of his father Jacob. If we remember way back to Genesis 29, if, if you, as, you're, as you're doing your Bible reading, Genesis 29, 
15 chapters before what we're in this morning. Jacob wanted to marry Leah's sister, right? Not Leah. He wanted to marry Leah's sister, Rachel. Jacob had worked seven years to marry Rachel, but when the wedding night came, Leah and Rachel's father, Laban, tricked Jacob into marrying Leah instead. Laban's reasoning, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. That was his excuse. But wait until the bridal week is over, that was the custom, then we'll give you Rachel too, you'll be able to marry Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. In other words, Laban wanted Jacob to work another seven years for him, since Jacob had tended his flock so successfully, and Laban did not want to have to provide for Leah anymore. Some father this guy was. Leah was always the one to be kicked around in the light of her younger, more attractive sister, Rachel. In fact, Leah's marriage to Jacob was outright based on this, her father tricking her husband into marrying her. I'm sure that didn't feel good to Leah. Instead of Jacob remedying the situation and making Leah feel loved for the first time in her life, he just made things worse when he married Rachel also and continuously pushed Leah aside. In fact, God saw Leah's emotional torment and abuse and had compassion on her. God always sees the mistreated. God always takes into account those who are being pushed around and abused and bullied. Those people are close to God's heart. So we read, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. This began, this began Leah's life stage as mother with her firstborn son named Reuben. When Reuben was born, Leah exclaims, the Lord has noticed my misery and now my husband will love me. Do you see what her focus is still on? That's all she wants, is for her, her husband to love her. See, this was always at the forefront of Leah's mind. All Leah wants, even beyond her children, is for her husband to love her. She makes similar exclamations after Simeon and Levi are born. And then her fourth son, Judah, is born. We see later on that things still don't change between Leah and Jacob. In fact, there comes a point later on when Leah has to make a deal with her sister in order for her to even sleep with her husband for that night. Talk about humiliation. This is everything that Judah's mother, Leah, went through. These are things that he's seeing, that he's noticing as he's growing up. All this time, as little Judah is growing up, he is witnessing firsthand how his very own father is treating his mother. There may not have been uh, any uh, physical abuse going on in his father's and, and mother's marriage, but there was obviously emotional abuse going on. Judah had a tough childhood. You think of people in the Bible, you don't necessarily think of them having tough childhoods, tough growing up years, but Judah had a tough childhood. Now lump on top of that the obvious favoritism his father showed to his younger half-brother Joseph. On top of all of that, Joseph's walking around, strutting around with a specially made coat that their father made for him. 
and lump onto even that, that when Jacob returns to Canaan with his family and under threat of attack by his brother Esau, go back and read this in Genesis. How does Jacob divide up his family? When he's about to enter Canaan and he knows, he thinks his brother is going to kill him and all of his family. How does he divide up his family into what order is going to meet Esau first? He puts his concubines and their children first, then Leah and her children, including Judah, next, and then Rachel and Joseph last. Jacob clearly shows who, th who he thinks has more value, who he thinks is worth more, to even live compared to the rest of his family with that move. Judah did not know grace. He didn't know mercy. He didn't know love from his own father because he was never really shown it from his father. So when his full-blooded sister, Dinah, is sexually assaulted by the prince of the city of Shechem, Judah's rage is incensed, and he jumps right in with his other brothers and kills all the men of that city and takes off with all the wives and children of that city. What do you think Judah did, with, and his brothers did, with a whole city's worth of women and, and children? What do you think he did with them? Obviously, Shechem wasn't a city like Philadelphia or New York, but there were a lot more women and children than Judah and his brothers wanted to care for. Perhaps some of the brothers took some as their wives and concubines and adopted some as their children, but perhaps the brothers used the women and children as bartering items and even sold them into slavery. Where do you think Judah got the idea of selling his own half-brother into slavery. Didn't come out of nowhere. Whose idea was it? It was Judah's idea. He's the one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. It didn't come out of nowhere. All these things led up to that moment. You don't go from having any experience selling human beings into slavery and having some sort of heart to outright selling your own brother into slavery. What I want us to see with this man named Judah is this. With each action that Judah takes in his life, his heart gets harder and harder with every action. Things are looking very dark for Judah. You could even look at his life and say, that guy, there's no hope for him. He's hopeless. He is utterly hopeless. That guy's never going to change. Things lead up to the day when Judah looks up and sees his younger brother, Joseph, coming towards them in the fields, obviously coming to check up on him and his older brothers. He obviously is not up to any good. And as if these dreams Joseph's been lording over him and his other brothers isn't enough, now their father is using him to tattle on them. See, what happens next is not a mere disconnected idea with no prior background. This idea comes from a heart molded by neglect, witnessing family emotional abuse, and rage, and a heart that was unmerciful and dark and treacherous towards his fellow human beings. So when Judah and his brothers see Joseph off in the distance, their gut reaction is to what? To outright kill him. That's what they want to do at first. That's their initial move. They want to outright kill him. 
It was only Reuben's half-hearted plan to rescue Joseph later when his brothers wouldn't know that, that merely got Joseph thrown into a water cistern. But when a caravan of Ishmaelites passes by on their way to Egypt, these are Judah's words. What will we gain by killing our brother? Think of the heart that is saying these words. We'd have to cover up the crime. He, he doesn't care about the killing of his brother. He's caring about the mess they'd have to clean up afterwards. That's what he's caring about. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. That's what he's using to get them to go along with his plan. And his brothers agreed. This idea is more so motivated by the first thing he says than anything else. Why make more work for ourselves by killing him and then having to figure out a way to cover that up? Someone somewhere's probably going to witness it, and fratricide, especially in cold blood, is seen as much more punishable than, say, an armed thief. So Judah's idea is not one of any kind of mercy towards Joseph. It's more of one of being able to get rid of him without possibly having to pay the punishment of murder, which could have been Judah's own death. And as the silver passed from the hands of the Ishmaelites to the Israelites, Judah was probably congratulating himself, thinking that Joseph would most likely die anyway in in his new position, and at least it wouldn't be at whose hands? Judah's hands. He wouldn't have to worry about that. Here we have, in Joseph's eyes, Judah's worst crime. But in Judah's eyes, it was just something that needed to be done without any mercy or even remorse. So again, you can look at Judah's life and with good reason think this guy is completely hopeless. He's not going to get any better. He's just going to keep getting worse. Does anybody have somebody like that in their life or they can think of? This guy, this person's not going to get any better. They're just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. This person is hopeless. When one willingly allows themselves to have a harder and harder heart, it's only a matter of time until their legacy, until that's their legacy and it's passed on to their family. Jesus warns a bad tree produces bad fruit. Not only is that true in that person's life, but that's true in the people that they bear, the generations that come after them. And this is seen as what, in what is next recorded in Judah's life. Judah marries a Canaanite woman, which he was not supposed to do, as his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had all taken certain precautions to not do that. Marrying a Canaanite woman would put the covenant that God made with his people in danger of being sucked up into that pagan family and perverted with Canaanite paganism. Judah's legacy is obviously passed on to his firstborn Ur. Judah continues this legacy of marrying who is supposed to be next in line in the chosen family to another Canaanite woman. After that, this is the only thing recorded for us about Judah's firstborn son named Ur. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. That is the only thing recorded for us about Ur. Imagine that. Ur was so evil 
that God did not want to continue his covenant with him, so he kills Ur. He wants to spare the rest of the world from Ur. Judah produces a person that God has to kill for the good of the rest of the family and the rest of humankind. Next, Judah continues his legacy of a hardened heart. He insists on his second-born son, Onan, marrying Ur's wife to continue the firstborn blessing. This was, just, this was a custom back then. However, Onan is too selfish and hard-hearted to do this, so God kills him too. Meanwhile, Judah is too blind to God's doing to see that his first two sons' deaths are by God's design and not because of some curse attributed to Tamar, the wife of Ur. So instead of betrothing his third and last son, Shelah, outright to Tamar, Judah continues his legacy by lying to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and telling her to go back to her family until Shelah was old enough to marry her. But it says in Scripture, Judah didn't really intend to do this. That was, he wasn't actually going to do that at all, because he was afraid Shelah would also die, like his two brothers. He thought that Tamar was just some sort of black widow uh, person. He didn't attribute it to God. He had, no, he, did not, he had no intention whatsoever of following through on this. I wonder if Judah thought his plan would ever work. His legacy of hard-heartedness is passed on to his daughter-in-law. And when she realized Judah was never intending on marrying her to Sheila, she comes up with her own plan. Do you see how all of this just gets perpetuated and passed on to the next person and the next person? Tamar dresses herself all up like a prostitute and goes to hang out where she knew he would pass by. You think this is going to end well? No, not at all. So now, not only has Judah married a Canaanite woman, but when she dies and the period of mourning is over, he insists on sleeping with this prostitute he sees on his way home from partying with his pagan friend. Tamar gets pregnant by her father-in-law, and when it catches Judah's ears, he proclaims that she should die for her sin. See, Judah just picks and chooses what laws he wants to follow, right? When it's somebody else, kill her. She deserves to die. When it's him, ah, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. The rules don't apply to me. That's what happens when you harden your heart to what God says is right. When it's found out that Judah is the father he is humiliated, I'm sure, but acknowledges the twin sons that she bears as his own and names the firstborn Perez. Now remember that name, Perez. It's going to be important. This is really the last time we hear about Judah until later on in Genesis 44. After Joseph has been raised from slavery and imprisonment for something he didn't do to governor over all of Egypt, his brothers have gone to Egypt a first time to buy grain, and Joseph, whom his brothers don't know is Joseph, insists on that if they want to buy grain again, they have to return with Joseph's other full-blooded brother, Benjamin. When the brothers need to return to Egypt to buy grain a second time, and their father Jacob flat out says no to them going there with Benjamin, Judah says to him, I personally guarantee his safety. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where is this coming from? 
You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. This is completely out of left field for Judah, isn't it? This comes completely out of nowhere for this guy. This statement is a very curious one. It's obviously a step in the right direction. We don't know how serious Judah is at this point, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. What happened between the incident with his daughter-in-law and now? We don't really know. All Judah had been doing his whole life was leave a trail of destruction behind him. Now, all of a sudden, he's pledging his life in exchange for the safety of the other now favorite brother, Benjamin. Perhaps it was the incident with Tamar that started the process of change. You can only follow the laws you create for yourself for so long before things come back to bite you. Am I right? Perhaps Judah was so ashamed because this was really the first time he had ever really been caught doing something wrong. Perhaps this started the wheels in his head to start turning and know that something needed to change. Why at that point, though? Why not after the destruction to the people in the city of Shechem? Why not after the betrayal of Joseph? We don't know. And you know what? I think that's the point of us not knowing. I think that's the point of the silence of Scripture on the actual process of the beginning of transformation. That's a lesson for us. You might know someone that you and it might have been yourself at one point, and everyone sees as hopeless. They've burned all their bridges. They've abused everyone's help towards them. But you know what? You don't know what's going on in their heart. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know how God's working. Things may appear silent. Things may appear like nothing's happening. But that does not mean that God is not working in their heart. The point is that you don't need to know that God is working in them. And you probably won't see it for even decades. But don't give up on that person. Don't give up on them. Because you know what? You might be the only person that's praying for them. You might be the only difference between them continuing down that road to destruction, and to hell. You might be the only difference. Don't give up on that person. Keep praying for that person. Keep doing what's right for that person. Keep being encouraged. Because even if the change is silent and you don't see it, God could very well still be working in that person's heart. You have no clue. We see this in Judah's life. Again, we don't know how serious Judah was in holding that promise he made to his father here. Perhaps it was just a way for them to be able to take Benjamin so they could go buy more grain and, and not watch his family starve to death. But again, it's a step in the right direction. And that's exactly what Joseph wants to make sure of when his brothers return with Benjamin. He, he, he makes sure to see how serious Judah is. The biggest beef that Joseph has with any one of his brothers, in particular, is probably Judah. If he had, all the beef that he has with his brothers, more, more, most particularly, is probably towards Judah. 
Judah says this to Joseph in response to the allegation made towards Benjamin that Benjamin had stolen Joseph's silver chalice. Oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. That's also very curious, isn't it? That he would make that statement. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves. All of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. But Joseph wants to see how his brothers, especially Judah, will respond when Joseph turns the heat up a little bit, a little bit more. Joseph insists on keeping Benjamin as a slave, forcing Judah to make a decision once and for all. And that's where we come to our passage this week. Uh, all of that led up to what we're going to read here. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Genesis chapter 44. We're going to read verses 18 through 27 in one fell swoop. But I wanted to give you all of that background uh, before this passage here. Joseph has turned the heat up a little bit more and is insisting on Benjamin remain as his slave. And this is Judah's response. Then Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, May your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about that when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back. Buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one who went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls you, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow." For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame for my father forever. Now, verse 33, Therefore, please let your servant, me, Judah, remain instead of the lad, a slave to my lord, Joseph, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? He comes all the way up to the point of sacrificing himself for the now favorite brother. All the background that I set up for Judah is setting up for who he still doesn't know to be Joseph at this point. He has no clue that the guy he's saying, I'll, I'll be your servant to, is his own brother, is Joseph. 
He doesn't know that Joseph hadn't been killed by a wild animal, or, or he knew that, but Ju Judah had shrewdly embedded that into simply what his father had thought, and he probably believed that himself at this point. There's no way Judah was going to announce to this Egyptian official before him that he had been the instigator of selling his own brother into slavery. But at the same time, at least Judah didn't outright lie to Joseph, who obviously knew the truth. Joseph, we need, needed to know that as well. Now we get to the first part of the true evidence of the change going on in Judah's heart. Again, 30 through 32. Now therefore, when I come to be to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with me since his life is bound up with the lad's life. When he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Joseph knew the hatred his brothers had towards their father. He knew how Reuben had blatantly disrespected their father by purposely sleeping with his father's concubine in order to assert himself as the head of the family before their father had passed away. He knew they hated their father for showing extreme favoritism towards Joseph. And this goes to show how powerful forgiveness was in, Joseph's life, in, in Judah's life. He had spent his whole life Think of how he was raised, Judah. He had spent his whole life hating his father for the way he had treated his mother. He spent his whole life hating his father for showing favoritism towards Joseph and being unsupportive at his sacking of the city of Shechem for Dinah's honor. But now who is Judah pleading for on his behalf? His father. Who does he say their lives are wrapped up into? His father. No matter how much his father had ruined his life, he was not beyond hope in forgiving him and even placing his own life on the line for him. Some of you have really dark past experiences with your father. There could have been neglect, abuse, misunderstanding, or complete absence. I'm not telling you to just get over everything and forgive the man. I'm not telling you to do that. I just know that it's possible for God to work in and heal your heart. And if there's going to be anybody that's going to work in your heart, it's going to be God. And it can only be God. And maybe, just maybe, through God's work, there can be forgiveness someday. The second part of Judah's true heart change is this. Again, verses 33 through 34. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Perhaps Joseph would have listened to the plea on behalf of his father, but Judah couldn't risk that. He put it all on the line. It was one thing for all the brothers to offer themselves as slaves because the governor might have thought that too much trouble and just let them go off with a slap on the wrist. But the governor insisted on just the one brother. But because jo Judah knew that the governor would not give up, he saw that he had no other choice. He had no other choice. Instead of giving up on Benjamin, Judah just gave himself up to take Benjamin's place. Judah knew that the only option the governor might take was him, 
in Benjamin's place, thus condemning himself to the rest of his life in slavery. He would never see his twin sons again. He would never see his brothers again. And he would never see his father again. And in the face of all of that, Judah still gave himself up. He still sacrificed himself. That is the evidence of true heart change. Amen? At this point, Judah is being the shadow of what was to come. Judah, knowing full well what awaited him, still sacrificed himself for another person. Thousands of years later, Jesus, knowing full well what awaited him, still sacrificed himself for all of humankind. So it's only fitting that Jesus, the Messiah, of which Judah was being a symbol of, would come from the line of Judah. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? The grace and mercy that God had over this man named Judah. Remember that name I told you that was important, Perez? God would redeem Judah's firstborn son from his immoral relationship with Tamar and continue the line of the Messiah through Perez. It would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah of all people, Judah, Perez of all people, and then so on and so forth till we got to the Messiah of all humankind. Look at the power of what God can do in someone's life. Look at the transformation that, somebody, that God can do in someone's life. Look at the redemption that God can do in someone's life. What I want you to see is that no one, no one is beyond hope. I gave you a person that was hopeless. You, if, I, if you knew somebody like that today who did all of these different things, you would come to the same exact conclusion. That person is completely hopeless. There is no hope for that person. They made their bed. Now they have to sleep in it. But look at what God did in their life. Look at the redemption God worked in their life. You are not beyond hope. No one that you know is beyond hope, and you are not beyond hope. Your loved one is not beyond hope. God can reach out to, God can redeem, God can save, God can transform anyone and everyone. And that was the whole reason he came to earth. For God so loved the world. The whole world. God can reach into anyone's life and start changing them. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your race is, your ethnicity, your political background. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how sinful you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus died for you. And Jesus died for your loved one. And Jesus can redeem you. Jesus can transform you. And Jesus can do the same for your loved one. That is what the business of Jesus is. Jesus saves. In fact, that is what the name of Jesus even means. It's the, the New Testament version of Joshua. Savior, salvation. When the angel told Joseph, you need, you need to name your son Jesus, for he will 
save his people from their sins. That's who he is. That's all he is. He is our Savior and he is our King. Jesus came to give good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That time is now. Jesus continues to have that mission. It didn't stop when the last period of Revelation was written. It continues on through now. Jesus continues to have that mission. His mission is you. He has given all of us the commission to go out and share his good news of salvation with one more person. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be somebody you're related to. It could be halfway around the world. His mission is your loved one, is saving your loved one. It may be taking them the long way around, but his mission is saving them. His mission is saving you. Pray like that. Hope like that. Don't think of that person as hopeless anymore. Think of that person as God has his hand over them, and he is going to save them. He is going to redeem them. He is going to transform them. He may be bringing them the long way around, but he's going to... He's going to work in their life. Hope like that. Live like that. And make Jesus' mission your mission too. That in Jesus' name, the poor would hear the good news of hope. Captives would be released. The blind will see. The oppressed will be set free. And that we would know and hope in God's faithfulness and God's favor. We're all thankful for God's grace and mercy. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us about this man named Judah. Everything that, that you allowed to happen in his life, all the sins that he committed, all the mistakes that he made, the legacy that he left, Lord, you redeemed that. You still broke through into his life. Every, anybody could look at that man and say he's hopeless. There's nothing that's going to change about him. But Lord, you are the only one who could break through into his life and you did so. And you saved him and you redeemed him. And you, had, you included him in your messianic line for even Jesus to be born from and from his son, from that immoral relationship. Lord, you redeem everything. So Lord, if there's anybody here who has a lot of trauma in their, in their past, things they still struggle with on a daily basis. Help us to see that you will redeem that. Help us to see that there's still hope in that, that you will still use that. You will heal us from that. You will redeem that. You will work in our hearts to forgive who we need to forgive. Lord, you are a God of redemption. You are a God of salvation, and you are a God of redemption. That is why you came to earth as a man, that is why you died on the cross, and that is why you rose again three days later to save us and to redeem us. I pray that if there's anybody that's in our life, that we could say, oh, that person's a Judah in my life, that we would pray for them even stronger and even with more fervor, knowing that nobody is hopeless, nobody is too far gone, that you can still break into that person's life. And I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name, our only hope, our only salvation. Amen.